thank you so much. Thank you guys all for coming. I know it's been a hectic morning. I'm glad we could all take this time. Um, so today we're going to be thinking about how does the gospel impact our friendships? Scott, Scott and I. Scott. <laughs> Scotty boy. <laughs> and I um, feel friendships are a relationship that often gets overlooked. Um, we may be far more familiar with how the gospel impacts marriage or even dating, how it changes family and raising children, but how much do we consider the gospel impacting our friendships? We're not wanting to assume that friendship is something you all find easy. Personally, friendship has been something that's caused me great insecurity over the years. Um, but friendship is something we all long for, so it seems vital that we begin thinking this through together. So Scott and I are going to lead us through some material that will help us consider what it means to be Christ-like and intentional in our friendships. We've divided the material into friendships with unbelievers and believers and because we believe both are equally valuable and important to consider. But we recognise because we're not God, those lines are not always so easily drawn and by God's grace, people will move from one category into the other. So in summary, we want you to deepen your friendships with disciples and to nurture your friendships with non-believers. And those will be the two big things that we're going to cover in the next hour. So to begin with, um, you'll have a question on your sheet. How does the gospel impact our friendships? We're not looking for a right answer. We're just looking to um, brainstorm together. So if you want to turn in pairs or threes where you're sitting, and we're going to take three minutes to delve deep into that as he was quote-unquote sharing gold. Uh, thank you, Aaron, for getting us up and running. Uh, it will come as no surprise to us that Aaron and I want us to spend a really good chunk of our time this morning looking at Jesus and looking directly at him and the way that he conducted his relationships, friendships with people on earth when he was around 2,000 years ago. We all know that he is our example. He's our motivation. He's our sustenance for living the way that we do. And as we look at him as his people... As we love him, as we love one another, as we love the world in which we live, we want to do that in a way that is distinct for God's glory, for the salvation of the nations. So we're good students because it brings God glory. We're good family members because it brings God glory. We speak truth like Jesus did because it announces his glory to the nations. We don't cheat or get angry in the sports pitch because it announces his glory to those around about us. And it's exactly the same with friendships. Friendships with believers, friendships with those who don't yet no, Jesus. And I think if, if we could summarise what we want to take away from this seminar in kind of two arm movements, what I would love for us to do is to deepen our friendships with believers and then reach out to those who don't yet know Jesus. So if you remember nothing else from the seminar this morning, remember those two hand actions, deepening friendships with believers and then reaching out to those who don't yet know Jesus with the gospel. So firstly, uh, let's talk about those who follow Jesus. In what way is Jesus a good friend to us? And how can we likewise in turn be a good friend to other Christians? Um, let's turn to John chapter 15. If you've got your Bibles there, which I hope you do. Erin's um, going to point us to just a few of these verses. And I'm going to point us to a few other verses first. We're going to do John chapter 15. Uh, Theo, just because I was in a group with you, I'm going to pick on you if that's okay. Can you read 12 to 17 of John chapter 15, please? Is that okay? Yeah. Nice and loud. Thank you. So, 12 to 17. Yes. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. 
greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. Thank you very much. Uh, so two quick observations, or a, kind of a summary of these verses in terms of relating to fellow Christians. To be a friend of Jesus and to then befriend other Christians Firstly, to befriend Jesus is to obey his commandments and to know his business. Okay, those are the two things that we see in those verses. There's more, but those are two strings I want to pluck. To obey his commandments and to know his business. So in verse 14, if you look there, if we do what Jesus commands, then we are his friends. Those who are chosen followers and family are marked by lives of obedience to him and to his word. So occasionally you bump into somebody you know around St. Andrews, more than occasionally. And you know someone or you recognise someone and you say, ah, you're Aaron's friend, aren't you? And I know that because I have seen you doing this or I've seen you at that event. You've seen them at a party, a wild party that Aaron has hosted previously. Or you've seen them hang out with Aaron in town. Well, similarly, we should be able to recognise those who are friends with Jesus because of what they do and who they are. We recognise them because they're visibly obedient to Jesus' commands. They're distinct from the world in which we live. And Jesus, our friends, he, he puts his spiritual arms around our shoulders and says to us, this is how my friends are to live. We obey Jesus' words. We listen to them and we follow them. That's the first thing. Secondly, to be Jesus' friend is to know his business. So verse 15, to know Jesus as a friend means to know what his salvation plan is for the universe and then to be brought into his salvation plan for the universe and then to be beacons of his salvation plan for the universe to others. So if you've seen, I'm sure you've seen this in a film or a TV show, but if there's like a family meeting taking place, think either Godfather or Peaky Blinders or something like that, where the family gathers from all around to discuss what's going on and to discuss what's happening next and what the family are going to do together. If we are present at Jesus' family meeting, we would not be shooed out of the room or asked to leave, nor would anyone come over to close the door so that we were unaware of what's happening. Rather, we as Jesus' friends are brought right up to the table and shown what's going on. We know the business of our friend. Jesus walks us through his salvation plan for the universe, bringing his people together under his rule for eternity. So therefore, those two things, if we're going to be Christ-like in our relationship with fellow Christians, then how do those two things apply? Well, firstly, a Christ-like friendship with other believers will be one where we eagerly encourage one another to obey Jesus' commands. One where we eagerly encourage one another to obey Jesus' commands. So we're not spiritual colleagues. We're spiritual teammates, patting each other on the back, picking each other up when we fall over, encouraging one another to keep going and to keep growing when it comes to obedience. Now, if friendship in the world looks like gathering with like-minded people to affirm one another, or maybe even compare ourselves to one another, Christian friendship, by contrast, is where we gather not necessarily with like-minded people, but Christ-minded people. Not to affirm one another or to compare ourselves to one another, but to challenge one another and spur one another on. 
So as a Christ-like friend, we care about the eternal destinations of the souls of fellow believers around about us a lot more than we care about their comfort, a lot more than we care about their happiness, and perhaps even more than I care about making the relationship slightly awkward. See, a friendship with a fellow Christian should and will have a growing depth, profundity, a spiritual dynamic to it that you most likely won't have with non-believers. I'm saying that you can be close to those who don't follow Jesus. I'm saying that you can share your wisdom with them and their wisdom with yours. You can love them dearly, but there will always be that discipleship element missing with somebody who doesn't yet follow Jesus, where you push your friends to follow his commands and they push you to follow his commands too. And so it wouldn't be a bad goal for us in our Christian friendships if we were to do all we could to sacrificially ensure the eternal salvation of our Christian friends. How can I love this Christian friend of mine in a way that deeply desires them to know eternity with Christ forever? Secondly, and really quickly before I hand back to Aaron, Christ-like friendship will be one that is all about the business of our mutual friend, Jesus. So obedience to Jesus and then business that he is uh, conducting in our world. One that is all about the business of our mutual friend, Jesus. He has made his salvation plan known to his friends. Our privilege then is to gospel one another, to remake his salvation plan known to one another again and again. So our friendships should be stuck on the same song or stuck on the same loop. One where we remind one another daily of what Jesus has done, what he is doing in our lives and what he will one day return to do. And I often find myself really spiritually recharged by Christian friendships where they retell the master's business to my flagging soul and my weary heart. And I'm sure that's true for you too. We care about Jesus' business so much that hugely benefits our growth as disciples talk to each other about what Jesus is doing regularly. And so as I listen to people in a church context or during the week, as they remind me of Jesus' business, They shape my heart to partake in that very same business rather than just observe or to be unsure or uncertain. They gather me back around the table of Jesus, if you like, to hear about his plan to save the nations every single time they talk to me about the gospel. They remind me of who I really am, what I'm really here to do, to glorify God, to announce his glory to others. Again, I'm not saying you only need to ever talk about Jesus and his word every time you hang out with other Christians. That's not the case with my uh, Christian friends. But if you've never thought to say to somebody, here are the ways in which I'm excited about Jesus' salvation plan for his people that have particularly struck me this week, given what I've gone through. Or here are the ways in which I'm finding Jesus' business clashing with the sin in my life. What about you guys? There'll be a much less uh, clunky way of asking that question, I'm sure, in our friendship. But those sorts of questions might be a really, really good thing to introduce to the relationships that you have with those who follow Jesus. So those are the two things that I want to kick us off with from John 15. A Christ-like friendship will be one that is all about the obedience and the business of our mutual friend, Jesus. And as we think a bit more about the intentionality and the application of all that, I'm going to have to Um, So we also want to consider how we can be Christ-like in our intentionality. How can we be purposeful and deliberate in the ways that we relate to our friends? We don't want to waste the friendships and the opportunities that the Lord has blessed us with. 
So um, turn to verses 12 and 13 of John 15 that you're already on. And um, Gwenon, would you be able to remind us of what <coughs> verses 12 and 13 say? My commandments: love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Thank you so much. So here we find the purpose we're to aim for in our friendships. We're to lay down our lives for our friends. When Jesus says this, he's first and foremost referring to his death, which was an atoning, redemptive act, which we cannot fully emulate and is part of Jesus' uniqueness. However, we are called to emulate the sacrifice and the service that Jesus showed, and he explains that this is how we are to treat one another. We see we are to be sacrificial. We are to lay down our lives for our friends. This won't look like dying on a cross for us, but it will look like a daily dying to self and a putting of others first. It will look like serving our friends in a way that is sustainably self-sacrificial. We will view our friends not as those who can help us or as those who are fun to be around, but as those Christ has called us to lay down our lives for. Laying down your life for your friend naturally leaves no room for cliques. Wanting to put others before ourselves leaves no space for only hanging out with those we find easy. Secondly, we want to serve. We are to lovingly serve our friends like Jesus served us. Jesus' deepest desire for each of us was that we would be in heaven with him and the Father. We are to share that desire for our friends. One of the greatest delights of a Christian is to share gospel encouragement with our friends and to go into spiritual battle with them as fellow soldiers for Christ. It is what Jesus does for us and is what we are to do for one another. We're going to focus in on one of the ways we can have this Christ-like intentional desire for our friendship in Proverbs 27 verse 6. So if you'd be able to turn there, Proverbs 27 verse 6. Proverbs is like roughly in the middle of your Bible. Mary, would I be able to get you to read that? Proverbs 27. Sorry. <laughs> I don't mean to shame you there. 27. Verse 6, please. Thank you so much. Verse 6, just. Yeah. Thank you so much. So first and foremost, we're going to think about what we're called not to do. What we're called not to do. So what does, um, I think on your sheet I've given the NIV version. Um, so what does an enemy multiplies cases mean? Proverbs uses pretty harsh language here, I think, to describe something we're all very prone to do. Our friend tells us they've been interacting with their flatmate in a certain way, and it seems a little bit spiteful to us. But there's so many justifications for their behaviour that we say nothing, or maybe we even say it's fine. Our friend tells us they find a way to cheat in their upcoming online, online exam, and we know it's wrong, but we also know saying something to them will annoy them, so we don't bother. Our friend says the dread words, did you hear? And we just quietly wait for them to gossip and spill the tea. We all do it. We all put being in our friends' good books above our friends' holiness. By nature, we all care more about people-pleasing and getting on well with others than ensuring Christ is honoured. 
But Proverbs is very clear. Caring more about the visible peace makes us an invisible enemy. So what are we called to do? What are we to do? Again, Proverbs uses extreme language to describe what a true friend does. We are to have the difficult conversation because we have the ultimate goal of our friend in mind. This does not mean that we speak the truth regardless of who we hurt. The Bible is very clear. We are to speak the truth in love. We cannot forget that gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. And this should always be done in an attitude of humility. We are to remove the plank from our own eyes before we mention the speck in our brothers. However, we do have to be prepared to have the difficult conversation, even if it makes us uncomfortable, even if it will not be easy for our friend to hear. And on the reverse, when a friend does raise something with us, we are to trust what they have to say, knowing their desire is to have us in heaven with them. No one finds it easy to take rebuke, but we are to aim for being generous in our listening and humble in heart. (coughs) Knowing that whatever sin they're wanting to help us with, the reality is we're far more sinful than they know and far more loved than we can ever imagine. So glance down to Proverbs 27 verse 9, just a little bit further down. It reads, Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Intentional friendship involves earnestly sincere advice that is sacrificial, that is serving, and that cares for our friend's holiness. So we're now going to think a little bit how we can apply this to ourselves. We're going to um, take five minutes to delve deep into the questions we have. Um, so turn back into your twos or threes and the questions are at the bottom. <laughs> I hope that's been helpful. <laughs> Step my feet. <laughs> and it's giving you some time um, to just ground what you heard um, into your own circumstances. I'm going to throw out some thoughts in case there was areas you didn't manage to cover. So I've got three um, suggestions for you. So suggestion number one is give your friends questions to ask. At my student church, um, they suggested that if you started dating someone, you should give a friend a list of questions to ask you every month so that you had someone who's keeping you accountable in your relationship. I'm going to suggest giving your friends questions to ask you ask you about other areas in your life too. Why not take some time today to tell a friend an area you would like accountability in? It could be as simple as once a month I want you to ask me how my Bible reading and my prayer life is. And if a friend asks you to do that, it is loving to keep that commitment and it is Christ-like to encourage them and point them to Jesus in these conversations. Suggestion number two is bring up Jesus with your friends. I must confess, this is something I find incredibly hard to do. I am awful at being the first to bring up Jesus when I'm talking to my Christian friends. I, for some reason, really worry that they're going to judge me for it. But I'm so thankful for the times that God has made me brave enough to do it. And I'm even more grateful for friends who do it with ease. I don't think I've ever judged someone for earnestly talking about Jesus. So if you have the same fear as me, I hope we can get past it together. I remember when I was in third year of uni coming back to my flatmates after being at church one evening. 
two of my flatmates were Christians and one of them wasn't. And they were sitting in bed watching Gilmore Girls and I came in absolutely distraught <laughs> because the guy I liked at church hadn't spoke to me all day. <laughs> so one of my Christian flatmates responded by saying, let's just share some encouragements from the Bible. <laughs> So they began shouting out these truths like, you're a child of God, you've been forgiven, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is quite a funny scene in my mind, especially considering the face that my non-Christian flatmate had. But I'm really grateful for friends like that, that whatever the problem, however big or small, they remind me of Christ. My suggestion number three is to pray for them. Again, I must confess, I am not great at this either. But I never regret it when I do it. There will be so many problems in our friend's life that we can't fix and that we worry about. There'll be times that our friends really struggle in their walk with the Lord. There'll be times when our friend's sin hurts us and discourages us. Without prayer, these times can seem really helpless. Prayer is a reminder that we are not in control. The Lord is. Prayer is an acknowledgement of the ultimate saviour in our friends' lives. Prayer grounds our concerns in the Lord's concerns. Prayer, in my experience, also really re- unites you to your friends when you're far apart physically. All of you will move on from St Andrews, but hopefully all of you will have friends from St Andrews who stay with you for life. One of the ways to stay united in that friendship is to be praying for them. Over summer, my best friend bought a house. I never looked at the estate agent website. I didn't go to a single house viewing. I didn't even discuss the pros and cons of that particular house before she bought it. But I feel massively a part of her decision because I prayed for her consistently through that process. So I think prayer is a wonderfully uniting thing. So we're now going to take 30 seconds to pray for a friend. We're going to pray for their holiness. We're going to pray for what's happening in their life. We're going to pray that they will be in heaven with us. So I'll keep the time. We're just going to take 30 seconds in our own heads to pray for a friend. Amen. I'm now going to hand back over to Scott. He's going to help us think through friendship with unbelievers. Cool. Thank you, Aaron. Um, why don't we do three things? Uh, why don't we stand? Why don't we stretch? And why don't we sit somewhere else? So do those three things. Stand. Rise. Stretch. You need to stretch. Whatever it is, you need to stretch. Thank you. And then sit somewhere else. It doesn't need to be the opposite side. Because obviously that wouldn't work. But just find a different angle.
concentration span the back at Emmanix. Which the Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh sorry. <laughs> who who feels like they moved the furthest? It's pretty fun. Oh, Daniel moved from dead corner to corner. Who feels like they didn't move at all? Yeah. Uh, let's turn our attention to those who don't yet follow Jesus. Um, as I said earlier, when it comes to befriending and loving non-believers, Jesus is once again our example, our motivation, our sustenance in our love for them. And spending time with, with sinners, to use the word that the Gospels use, is something that Jesus is criticised for quite considerably during his ministry on earth. So if you turn with me to Luke chapter 7, let's turn to Luke chapter 7. Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees. They've just rebuked Jesus, so it's a rebuke off. And Jesus well and truly wins. He says to the Pharisees, this is verse 33, he says, John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, well, he had a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and you say, he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. See, Jesus' point is really simple. John the Baptist didn't eat or drink conventionally and they criticised him for being demon-possessed. Jesus ate and drank conventionally and they criticised him for being a glutton and a drunkard. And it reveals the Pharisees' hypocrisy. It reveals how impossible it is to please them. But it also reveals a lot about who Jesus spent his time with and what sorts of things he did with them. So in the middle of all of that, imagine just what Jesus must have done. Imagine how he must have lived his life in order to earn the nickname Friend of Sinners. How does one earn that title, do you think? The irony is that the Pharisees and the religious authorities are touching on something true here. Their comments are supposed to be mocking, scoffing, derogatory, but actually they're much closer to the mark than they realise they are. And so as we watch Jesus in the Gospel, the friend of sinners, the friend of those who are spiritually outside of the kingdom, those who are not yet followers. Asking ourselves how we can also befriend who are currently, those who are currently lost um, without him. I want to give us just an ABC of how we might live like him. And then I'll hand back over to Aaron. So our A in our ABC is to aim to be, sorry, aim to love, not to be liked. So aim to love, not to be liked. Jesus' example is to go to the sinners, to go to the undeserving, even those who he knew wouldn't listen to him, those who he knew would mock and scoff the good news. He was aware that in so doing, he was crossing a cultural barrier or two or more, and it might cause a few eyebrows to rise. And he knew that culturally, his actions weren't going to be universally liked by the world in which he lived, that his friendships with sinners would be viewed as a threat would be viewed uncomfortably culturally. And he was very happy to rise above all of that. He went into these conversations, situations, circumstances, knowing that he would meet the disapproval of the religious authorities. But it didn't stop him. He kept going. He knew he was going to be shunned by some, but he knew how important it was to display the love of the Lord to those who were outside 
of the kingdom. He went into these relationships, I suppose, knowing it would be easier to spend time with others, but he did it for the sake of their salvation. And so if you think of your lecture theatre, your tutorial, your hall of residence, your sports team, your group of close, non-believing friends, imagine if we were to go to them like Christ would. Rather than being worried about being liked by them, our concern is to love them. Imagine our roots being so secure in Christ, so secure in the friendships we have with his people that we don't really care about our reputation with those who don't follow Jesus as much as we do care about their salvation. Now, that to me sounds really, really hard to do. I would find that extremely difficult. It pushes back against most instincts, I think, when it comes to friendships. It might feel hard and isolating to know that you're the only one giving a lot of love in a particular context and getting nothing in return, not even being liked. But it's exactly what Jesus does in the gospel so that people hear about the kingdom. It's exactly what he did with you. It's exactly what he did with me. And he empowers us as his people with the security, the identity, the perspective and the spiritual power through his Holy Spirit that we need to turn to non-believers and say, hey, do you want to hang out? Some of them might not ever have as good a friend as you. Some of them might not have ever heard the gospel before in their lives. What an opportunity you have to be salt and light to them. And so that's the A in ABC. Aim to love as Jesus loves you and loves them, not necessarily to be liked all the time. Similarly to that, the B in our ABC is to be comfortable with the uncomfortable. So be comfortable with the uncomfortable. Jesus would find himself spending time with those that he should have spent time with in society, culturally, and also those that he shouldn't have spent time with culturally in society. There is a real indiscriminate nature to Jesus' approach. And it meant that Jesus was really comfortable with the social discomfort of being around those that needed him the most. Tax collectors, religious leaders, down to beggars and down and outs. He was very happy to hang out with them all and very happy to turn expectations and norms upside down. Now, I don't know who you feel like you get on with best or who you speak to the best or speak to the most naturally. Uh, I have a friend who confessed to me once that he really struggles to get alongside people who aren't into sports because he doesn't really know how to build relationships with them because that's all that he thinks about and cares about. Fair admission, but I wonder if actually we understand something of that ourselves. I think it's easy to think that in order to be a good friend to somebody, we have to have bags of stuff in common with them, loads in common. And that's why it's actually nicer to hang out with Christians or more natural to hang out with Christians. I think that can be a help to have loads in common. But in the end, in the Gospels, it's not a concern that Jesus had or shared. He was happy to go to those right across society, those who he had loads in common with and those who he didn't, in order to talk to them about the Gospel. And it might mean that as we assess our friendships, we realise that we spend a lot of time with Christians and that's no bad thing. But we might want to just start giving an hour, an hour and a half a week, maybe more, to a group of non-Christian friends. The next time an invitation appears on Facebook to go to an event where we know it's going to be pretty wild, we might actually think about going along this time rather than not going. Not so that we join in, but so that we can reflect something of God's glory into what could otherwise be quite a dark place. The people that we end up having the best gospel conversations with could often be quite different to us. I'm sure some of us will know that already. 
in situations that we often thought we would never ever be in train journeys bus journeys random conversations with people sat on benches in St Andrews who knows if you end up with an opportunity to talk to somebody who doesn't know Jesus you're acutely aware that you have nothing in common don't be scared by that be comfortable with the uncomfortable and then thirdly before I hand back to Aaron the the C in our ABC is to champion or cheerlead the gospel however you can champion or cheerlead the gospel however you can see as Jesus was around all these non-believers not once did he sin not once did he compromise the father's laws not once did he cut a corner or join in with the behavior of those around about him his conduct was gospel clarity and gospel perfection at all times He didn't sin at all. He came across neither as affirming nor as cold. He wasn't too close, nor was he too distant. And as we read him and read him again and again in the Gospels, we see that he just very naturally lived out the Gospel and how he lived, how he spoke with others that were appropriate to the situation that he was in, specific to the individual, bespoke to the relationship that he had with that person. It's how he loved the people that he met. He championed the gospel. He never aggressively ran it through someone. He was content to walk away when it was clear that the individuals in question were not interested, were not going to repent, were not going to believe the good news. He always showed and spoke the truth of the gospel in every single situation, calling people to listen to him, to repent of their sins, inviting them to behold the son of God for themselves. And I think those are good goals for us to have as we think about our non-Christian friends How can I naturally speak of Jesus, naturally show Jesus in building and enjoying friendships with those that don't yet know him? How can I do it really casually, but really intentionally? Now, just one disclaimer before I move on here. One reason why you might want to stay away from certain non-Christian contexts is if you know that being there could compromise your championing of the gospel. So we never want our proximity to those who don't yet follow Jesus to lead to a distance from Jesus and his business. We want to be ambassadors for the gospel, however close we get to those who don't yet know him. Now, for some of us, that might mean beginning a friendship with somebody who doesn't know Jesus. It might mean taking a step further towards a group of friends that we already know that don't yet know Jesus. Or it could at times mean taking a step back from them, taking a step back from certain contexts, just so that I can show the distinct lifestyle that I live as somebody who champions the gospel. One where I show everyone how much God means to me and how much Jesus means to me. So that's our ABC. And so in all of our relationships with non-believers, however close to them you are, however close to them you're able to get, and that'll look different from day to day, from one person to the next, Champion the gospel in how you speak and in how you love them. Good. I'm going to hand back over to Aaron, who's going to talk about intentionality. So, <coughs> sorry. As we reflect on being intentional and purposeful in our friendships with non-believers, it's important to remember that our aim for our unbelieving friends is the same as our aim for our believing friends. After all, it would be odd if after our friends became a Christian, we had to radically change how we hung out with them. Our aim is the same. We want to serve them and sacrifice ourselves for them in order that we may reflect Christ and they may be in heaven with us. 
Whilst last time that involved caring about her friend's walk with Christ and their holiness, this time it's going to focus on caring about her friend's eternal destiny. Last time we focused on sharing the gospel as a means of discipleship and encouragement. This time we're going to focus on sharing the gospel as a means of salvation. We're going to look more specifically at what this involves. So turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. Toto, would you be able to read chapter 2, verse 8 of 1 Thessalonians? 1 Thessalonians is at the back of the letters. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. Thank you so much. So, we see that our heart is supposed to be for our friends. We're supposed to love them so deeply and in such a way that we can say we're affectionately desirous of them. This is exactly what Scott was telling us about. Our friends are not just people we keep around so we have someone to invite to the CU events week or to sit beside in class. We're called to earnestly love them as genuine friends. And the product, what is the product of that love and friendship? It was sharing not only the gospel, but their lives as well. For a long time, Christians have struggled to share the gospel with people. We find it scary. But as our culture gets more hostile to Christianity, I think we're beginning to find sharing our lives with unbelievers almost as difficult. But God calls us to share not only the gospel, but our lives with people so that they may see our good deeds and glorify God. That means we're not only to be intentional with our message, but we also need to be intentional with our time. A truly dear friendship will consist of both time and message. And this is how the same sacrifice and service that we discussed earlier will manifest itself here. It could look like choosing to have dinner with your halls mates rather than your CU mates every evening. Or it could look like sitting with your course mates in the library rather than your life group every day. The easy thing is to only ever see Christians, but we want to do the intentional thing. What would it look like to make a point of seeing your non-Christian friends once a week? because you already know you're going to see your Christian friends at church and life group. It used to be that people would talk about friendships hitting your time and your wallet. And whilst that's still true, it might also be true that today we find it more hitting us in our time and our comfort. As we share life with people, the most normal thing in the world is to talk about the things that matter to us. If someone asks you what you did at the weekend, Tell them about the really exciting football match you watched, but also tell them about the really exciting thing you learned at church. We won't always find it the easiest thing to hang out with people who don't know Jesus. As Scott was saying, we find it difficult to go to places with people who don't have the same priorities as us, who won't talk like us, and might even laugh at us. But Jesus ate with the scribes and Pharisees. Those dinner parties were far from comfortable for Jesus. The small talk would have been awful, and they could have been really difficult. But Jesus dined with people who not only laughed at him, but who plotted to kill him. 
I remember one time bringing my flatmate to a CU lunch bar. Afterwards, when we were chatting about the talk, she got pretty heated with me and was pretty snarky. I was really upset by this and told a girl on the CU committee about it. I said to her, I, I don't know what I could have done to avoid this. I don't know what I should have done differently. And she looked at me really perplexed and said, you know they killed Jesus. <laughs> In many ways, we should not expect people to treat us differently to how they treated our saviour. But why do we endure this treatment? Turn to me to 1 Peter 2, <coughs> verse 12. 1 Peter 2, verse 12. Even further back than Thessalonians. Amos, have you got it? Could you read for me? Yeah, yeah. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. Thank you. So, why do we endure this treatment? We want to open our lives to people so that when when they're slagging us off for what we believe in, they can't slag us off for being hypocritical. We want to live life alongside people so that when they're angry (coughs) at our ethics, they can't claim that we aren't kind to people. We want to genuinely support people so that even when they're mocking us for not joining in, they can't argue that we aren't there for them. Despite the rejection we may face, we can be bold, we can trust in God, because he will use the tiny, subtle ways that we are different to our friends to point them to him. We can feel not quite at home and a little alien because God is using us to glorify himself. So we're going to turn to application at the bottom of the page, the same as last time. Let's spend five minutes reflecting on what this might look like for you. That's been um, a time you've been able to be honest, and I hope um, that time has been useful. And again, I'm just going to make some suggestions in case there are some things you didn't manage to cover. So suggestion number one, new friends equals sacrifice. Some of us might have to sacrifice going to every Christian event in order to make new friends. And by that, I don't mean sacrifice going to church in the name of making non-Christian friends. By that, I mean saying no to seeing a Christian friend every now and then so that you have free time to invite someone from your sports team for a coffee or so that you can invite someone from your course to study together. And some of us might have to sacrifice a quiet night in to go to a new society so that you may meet some people and get to know some people that you have things in common with. When you think of all that Jesus sacrificed for us, what we can sacrifice to help save others is really quite small in comparison. Suggestion two, stepping closer equals being deliberate. For some of us, we need to be deliberate in going to our friends' events, in opening up to our friends, and in partnering with our friends. When our friends have things on, let's be deliberate in in prioritising going to them. Let's show them that we care by taking an interest in what matters to them, rather than going to the comfortable event with a bunch of Christians. Let's be deliberate in opening up to our friends, Let's share our worries, our struggles, and our suffering with people who don't know Jesus. They may give awful advice in return, 
But then they will get to see how you deal with those struggles and it will be wonderfully odd to them. John and Cody slightly stole my thunder in this, but let's be deliberate in partnering up our friends. We don't want to have a bunch of believing friends over here and a bunch of unbelieving friends over here. Let's deliberately merge those worlds. So our friends know we aren't some unique radical, that actually we're a pretty standard Christian and they can be one too. Suggestion three, stepping back equals clarity. For some of us, we need to be really clear what our new line of behaviour is and what our friendship with them will look like. For some of us, this might involve some clear but really difficult conversations. <coughs> this might be mean being clear for friends that we aren't going to get drunk with them anymore or being clear that we aren't going to date them anymore. And whilst those chats might be difficult and feel like we're giving up gospel opportunities, we also need to be really clear in our own minds that prioritising our own holiness shows more Christ to our friends. So now I'm going to hand back to Scott, who's going to wrap us up. Uh, super, thank you, Aaron. Um, we're done, basically. Um, thank you so much for listening so well. Um, hopefully there's loads of stuff in there that has begun thought processing in your heads and in your hearts. And if you wanted to chat to... Uh, Aaron or myself or Christy or a life group leader or somebody else, please come up and grab somebody. Or if you want to turn to a Christian friend and speak to them about something that has struck you today, then please feel free to do that. I would really encourage you guys to have a think about all of those things. We've been quite specific in what we've kind of targeted, for lack of a better word, today. Uh, there's loads and loads of other things that we could talk about. And for that reason, amongst others, let me recommend this book to you. It's called True Friendship. It's on the bookstall for £4. It's actually less than £4, it's 3 99 Are we giving penny change back to people who... It's a bank transfer, of course. Spot the guy who's in his 30s. Uh, we are recommending this book to you guys for, again, multiple reasons. One being that it tackles quite a broad range of ways in which friendships apply uh, to... Sorry, in which the gospel applies to the friendships that we have. It takes into account bits of the Bible that we've not been able to delve into it takes into account the way in which we as, as Christians should approach friendships in a way that I guess sort of like what we've been talking about today reflects the friendship that Christ has with us into the lives of Christian friends with bags of application for non-believers as well. But it talks about things like singleness, it talks about things like marriage, it talks about things like different sorts of loves and how actually culturally certain loves are prioritised over other loves and actually that's not necessarily biblically true or accurate. So it really kind of digs into a lot of those things that I think are, are really helpful just to kind of unpick some idols maybe in my heart and also to make sure that my understanding of friendship is a gospel one rather than a gospel plus cultural one or maybe kind of swings or sways between the two it really helps me to remember what a, a biblical friendship actually means and looks like it's super short the writing's quite big there's even one or two other diagrams no there's no diagrams it's just really nicely laid out that's the other thing and so as somebody who's from glasgow who can barely read it's a real blessing to me. Short chapters. Why not buy one? Why not uh, take it home? Why not, as part of your quiet times, read a chapter which will take you two, three minutes and then chat to somebody else about it and then once you've read it, hand it on to somebody else and take £1.99 off them. 
and then they, they can hand on to somebody else and that person can give them 99 pence. Then the cost is spread out and everybody's read the book. Genius! How good an idea is that? Um, let me wrap up there by praying for us and then we'll have a short... Thank you so much for time spent looking at friendship this morning. Thank you that we have the perfect friend in Jesus. And we thank you, Father, for the way that he richly blesses us by speaking the truth of the gospel into our lives. And we pray that you would help us to uh, copy him, to, uh, for him to be our example as we then speak the gospel into the lives of those who know you and those who don't yet know you. Father, please give us all the wisdom, all the discernment that we need to be a really good Christ-like friend to both believers and non-believers. And we pray all these things for your glory so that folk may grow in the gospel. Uh, and for our ongoing salvation as we run the race to completion. In Christ's name we ask. Amen.